Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the BBC thriller Killing Eve and the film Crazy Rich Asians. Anna has also been watching Shane Dawson's YouTube documentary series on Jeffree Star, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. We're recording this one slightly in advance, aren't we, Caroline? Because I'm going to be away again. So we've managed to make it so that there's not going to be a gap in our podcasting schedule for all our lovely listeners. So I'm pretty pleased with that one because we've been a little bit gappy lately. So I'm glad we've prevented another one. We have, yes. We've been so organised this week. I've been very disciplined about only watching things that are for the podcast and therefore have managed to get through it. The one thing I have been watching quite intensely, though, is the Kavanaugh hearing in the US. Yes, same. Um, It's just been an absolutely extraordinary and like just incomprehensibly depressing (laughs) experience. I don't think this hearing is going to go in the way that you and I want it to go. (laughs) No, absolutely not. It's all in the most fundamental way been for nothing in a sense Mm. I think well maybe we'll be proved wrong by events but I don't think so but yeah I just I can't help thinking about that photograph that was going around everywhere on social media that showed Kavanaugh like in the middle of the table sort of in full flow like red-faced old white man and then behind him there was just this row of women on the front row in the audience of the hearing and all of them were just making some version of the like you what man face and I was like even women in the room with him cannot hide their disgust for what he is saying. Why does no one care about I know. this? And the difference in the way, in the presentation styles of the two mm. of them, just so extraordinary where Dr. Ford, you know, we often talk about the the kind of dangerous myth of the perfect victim, but if there yes. is a perfect victim, it's her. I mean, she remembers everything quite clearly and the stuff that she doesn't remember, she's very kind of clear about what she doesn't know like yeah why not and she you know some of her own expertise comes in and her knowledge of um you know how the memory functions when you've gone through a traumatic incident um and she's so polite and she you know apologizes to the and she didn't cry or anything that would make her seem weak or like yeah and when she did get emotional it was just so raw and so clear what she you know that Mm. i'll never forget her talking about how the one thing that she really remembers from the incident is the the uproarious laughter of the two men Mm. who were having a great time and 
I don't know. She just, she was so rational and clear and calm and wonderful. And then Kavanaugh comes in and he's like so petulant and stroppy and angry and doing the classic kind of like crying as a making myself a victim sort Mm. of not, not because I'm actually upset, but as a, you know, it was just all completely stroppy adolescent and just inappropriate. You know, like you wouldn't behave like that at work and he's behaving in that way at a sort of, I mean, I've seen people on Twitter describing it as a job interview, you know, like in a very, in a very um, high octane professional setting to, you know, be, he's being sassy like that and going on and on about how much he loves beer. Like, why is that an appropriate thing to do? It just all is absolutely baffling to me. I know. I find that it is like amazing television. I think that's why it's worth talking about here. It is that you couldn't script anything more bizarre for the scenario that it's supposed to serve. And yeah, I was thinking the whole time, I was like, you're essentially auditioning to be one of the most important judges in the world. Why do you think this is good material to show that you'd be good at that? Mm -hmm. And in some ways it felt a bit like the Hillary Trump kind of dynamic playing mm. out again, where you had Dr. Ford stood there in like all in blue and in this incredible kind of like powerful outfit and so calm and so ready to dispute lies with facts, you know, facts. She had a lot of facts at her disposal. Yeah. And then Kavanaugh just like ranting and raving and just knowing that this kind of senseless patriarchal blustering is the thing that's going to be ultimately the victor when Mm -hmm. it seems so obvious that this like hyper-competent, intelligent woman is the one that's in the right. It just really so depressing. (laughs) Yeah. If you've been avoiding it, I would counsel you to continue doing that because although it's it's compelling. It's it's not fiction. It's real. That's the thing I had to keep reminding myself while I was watching yeah. it, that you are not watching some kind of spin-off of a spin-off of like The Good Wife or something. This is this is real life, even though it didn't really feel like it. But she's incredible. She's an incredible woman. She is incredible. So much power to her. Like I'm just so in awe of her. And so I was so impressed watching her testimony. And yeah, I just, if nothing else you know we've gained a hero in her like it's just Mm. incredible stuff anyway aside from that we've been watching seriously things (laughs) we have and I've also been working on something in the background that I'm almost ready to share with listeners which is a sort of secret project to do with detective novels from about 1920 to 1945 and I'm very very nearly ready to release it but before I do I need hopefully some seriously listeners to help me out with it. If you like those novels, and I'm talking about Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Naomi Marsh, Gladys Mitchell, those kind of people, uh, if you like their work, I would like you to tell me why. Send me an email on, um, I've set up a special um, address for it. So it's Caroline Crampton plus mysteries at gmail.com, like the plus sign. And yeah, just send me a short email and I will explain more and how you can get involved. Sounds extremely exciting and extremely Caroline. So can't yeah, wait it's, for that. This, everyone I've uh, like let in on the secret has basically been like, this This is your dream job, isn't it? You're just trying to make it happen. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'll happen. I'm so excited. It will happen. I'm, I'm doing it. It's happening. So anyway, rolling on with uh, today's show. The first thing we're going to talk about this week is Killing Eve, which is an eight-part series made for BBC America. 
It was adapted for television from Luke Jennings' codename Villanelle novellas by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who wrote Fleabag for BBC Three, and we've talked about her a lot on this show. It stars Sandra Oh as Eve Palastri, a security officer who becomes obsessed with a mysterious female assassin, and Jodie Comer as that assassin, Villanelle, the psychopathic killer who in turn becomes obsessed with the officer tracking her. So it's like, it's not really cat and mouse, it's more like cat and cat. Mm, Yeah. Which, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a gross phrase considering it's also like one of the kind of first amazingly critically received woman-fronted um <laughs> maybe calling them cats is a little bit sounds a bit like catty or bitchy or something doesn't it but yeah it's really incredible because it is this kind of compelling chase between two people and you don't know who's hunting who um and it's set all over the place isn't it but there's lots of scenes in london because Sandra O works for MI6 and so there's lots of kind of London set elements but then Villanelle who's this kind of like international assassin is kind of in Paris one day and Moscow the next and yeah Vienna and Budapest and everywhere yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the main things I thought when I first started watching this was like there is money behind this Mm -hmm. there is a lot of it looks expensive and there are a lot of exterior shots in front of famous landmarks that could not be faked. <laughs> and the wardrobe is incredible. Mm. And, you know, we've talked already on this show about how this is a BBC America production, not a BBC Three production or a BBC anything else production. And there's like a lot of loopholes that allow BBC America to have a lot more money than the BBC. Yes. And it, it kind of shows in this um, in this drama. But we, it was much hyped for you and me because we're big fans of um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And uh, I think a lot of the other programs that we really like, or at least I really like, are things that are kind of like, you know, we're both big fans of murder mysteries and we're both mm-hmm. big fans of kind of like crime TV shows. And I'm such a huge fan of Happy Valley, which was like... And Search Party, I feel, is relevant as yeah, well to this. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So a lot, it kind of has a lot of the threads of stuff we liked. And I think... The cast are incredible and there was a real danger once we knew the cast and the premise and the script writer and everything that this would inevitably disappoint because our expectations were sky high. But for me, it just like smashed through them. And it's just, I think, the best thing that I've seen on TV in a long time and definitely my favourite thing that's been on TV this year in 2018. Yeah, same for me by far. Like I haven't been so simultaneously gripped and amused by something in a really long time because this is something that I think must be Phoebe Waller-Bridge because it just for me speaks so much of her other work is that she's managed to make something really dark and quite tragic in places and quite scary sometimes she's also managed to make it funny like the Mm. we were you know last we're not going to go into this a huge amount because we talked about it a lot last week but you know Bodyguard is the other BBC series that's been getting a lot of talk so far this autumn and I did not laugh once whilst watching Bodyguard, apart from at its ridiculousness. Its mm. dialogue was flat and wooden and rubbish, whereas the dialogue in Killing Eve is like light and sparkling and funny. And for instance, um, Sandra O's oh's character has a really interesting and sort of antagonistic relationship with one of her colleagues, played by David Haig. And they kind of trash talk each other and every time like is it in the first or second episode when spoiler alert they're about to get fired Mm. you know there's this amazing scene where Sandra O yells at their boss like you're just a dick swab and her colleague goes hey and you think he's suddenly gonna go like you can't speak to him like that and he goes I wanted to call him that (laughs) you know it's constantly surprising you with little linguistic moments like that yeah and she's managed to create something that is 
glossy and sexy and funny and sparky, but is also really to the bone in terms of character. And I think she's got this amazing skill of managing to make characters so believable and Mm. their motivations seem real. And like you say, the way that people talk to their colleagues seems real. And I think that's actually quite a hard thing to do to make something that's kind of over the top and absurd and funny in places, but also really emotionally realistic and others. And there's an incredible um, scene uh, that's really, really serious. And I won't spoil the details of it too much because I do think one of the great things about this program is how surprising it is. So I don't think we want to get get too spoilery as we discuss it, but there's a really great serious scene that involves a massive betrayal and the character starts talk, explaining why they've done what they've done and it's really horrible. And then you just see Sandra O oh, look at this person pitying how pathetic they are. And she just says, you can't blame the NHS for this. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> such a perfect, funny, amazingly well delivered mm-hmm. line. And then the other character says, no, of course I don't. I blame the government. And it's just so, <laughs> it's so brilliant. And there are so many lines like that. And I, that Fiona Shaw has an incredible line. Right, oh, She's great in right this. In, I love her Yeah, Fiona Shaw, who you might know as, as Petunia Dursley from the Harry Potter series. She plays uh, Sandra O's boss, essentially. But, but she likes her, her good boss mm. at MI6. And um, there's, a, there's a line really early on where she's taking Sandra O to her new office. And she just points at the street and she goes... I once saw a rat there drinking a can of Coke with both hands. Extraordinary. <laughs> it's just so funny. And it really just made me hysterically laugh. Mm-hmm. And, and, and but the whole time you're just so gripped by the actual plot and what's happening. And you want to know, you know, like, is Sandra O oh going to behave completely recklessly because she's so obsessed with this case? Or what is her? Is she going to continue to keep disappointing her husband at home? there's just so much going on and there's so much texture to it and it's really really seductive and I just I think it's really strange like I actually haven't seen TV like that before I think it is doing something genuinely Mm. quite revolutionary and new and yeah I just I'm so excited that it's even on our screens and it's getting a second series before it even aired it had been picked up for a second series they've already started filming it so that is exciting in itself but yeah I just wanted to touch on this idea of it being believable because I don't want anyone to think that I think Villanelle's poison perfume is Mm. any more realistic than any of the shenanigans in Bodyguard. Like it's just not. But I think the point is that the characters are, are believable as people and their emotions and their interactions and like their workplace humor, as you said, and their like random little asides and, you know, the, uh, scene where, Fiona Shaw and Sandra O oh are like meeting in a cafe and Sandra O oh says can I have a gin and tonic and the waiter says well we don't actually open the bar it's 10 a.m and Fiona Shaw just looks him dead in the eye and said two gin and tonics <laughs> and that kind of the aura of a more powerful and more authoritative woman like more comfortable with her role just and the waiter's like sure I'll get them you know that kind of thing just feels realistic to me yeah and that's what makes yeah that was that's what makes you happy to go along with the poison perfume and the like creepy hairpin and all of all of the sort of mad ways in which Vernelle assassinates people and gets away with it because when she gets back to her like fancy apartment in Paris and flops down on the sofa you believe that she actually is tired Mm. yeah Uh, whereas I never believed anyone in bodyguard 
because they just never seem to sit down or like say anything normal. I love the performances as well. I think the cast are incredible in this. And I think those three lead um, female performances are just incredible. Jodie Comer is Villanelle. Jodie Comer is amazing. And I wanted to say actually, um, because she was the lead in the BBC Three Series 13 that we talked a lot about. Mm -hmm. uh, What was it? A couple of years ago that was on now. Yeah, I think it must have been in 2016. Yeah, which is really not that long ago. But if you think that, you know, she, she was utterly convincing I thought as a kind of juvenile kidnapping victim mm-hmm. in that, you know, mm-hmm. she was so uncertain and she was so uh, like traumatized and all of that. And now she's like strutting around Vienna in designer clothes, equally as convincing as a kind of international woman of mystery, like w- with a kind of psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing that's really interesting about her as an actress is she always brought this kind of double-edged side to her performances. So Mm. one thing she was really great in um, My Mad Fat Diary, which is something that we've talked about on Seriously a lot. That's one of just one of my favorite shows. And she plays the best friend figure um, in My Mad Fat Diary, but she's also kind of the frenemy figure and she can be really bitchy and horrible and mean, but she can also be really loving and insecure and naive. And she brings both sides of that kind of, what are in, I think an inherent kind of double sides to a lot of teenagers how you can be like really vulnerable and then lash out and be quite horrible. Um, she brings that so well to that role. And in 13, there's kind of a subplot where you're quite suspicious of her, even though she yeah. is a traumatized, twitchy kidnap victim. And she has to play this, this, this victim who's also a little bit unlikable. And there's mm. an edge of, you know, darkness to her, which I'm sure is the case for people who've gone through incredibly intense experiences like that. And so she makes it this quite compelling difficult performance where you never quite know how to feel about her and that's what she's doing in Killing Eve she's doing this performance where I mean first of all she's just incredibly charismatic and so you end up sort of rooting for the Villanelle character at points even though you know that she's the criminal mastermind it's not as simple as her being the villain that you want to see thwarted because you really do just grow to become completely obsessed with her and love her Mm -hmm. but at the same time she's you know playing with the idea of, you know, where does does Villanelle have feelings or not? Do, is she completely unempathetic and emotionless? Or is she scarred by some trauma in her past? Like mm. all of these things that 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 role are really, they never want to give you a satisfactory answer and they never box up that character and they all it always leaves you guessing. So it's genuinely surprising. And I just think that's incredible. And I think Fiona Shaw and Sandra O oh as well are just bringing next level compelling charismatic performances and you never want to take your eyes off all three of these women and Mm. it's just so brilliant to see yeah and it goes without saying really how exceptional it is to see like a quality drama with so much money spent on it with so many major female characters I know it also led to the best email I've ever received where I've been trying to get some some interview time with some of the cast and (laughs) the PR one of the PRs said to me I'm really sorry we're struggling to pin down like you know these these incredible women would you by any chance take one of the men <laughs> and I've that's just amazing never, I've just never had a like a, a journalism mm-hmm. experience like that before and I was just so it just filled me with can you complete can you joy. interview um the like IT boy who does all of the hacking <laughs> Kenny. I would take an interview with Kenny <laughs> with Kenny we'll maybe Kenny or take no Kenny <laughs> I just can't wait for the second series, to be honest, which is being filmed right now as we speak. Um, And I'm just so pleased that a weird show like this exists 
and I just yeah I can't wait I'm so excited mm-hmm. a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash post. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now we're going to talk about Crazy Rich Asians, which is a romantic comedy directed by John M. Chu and based on Kevin Kwan's best-selling novel of the same name. It stars Constance Wu as Rachel Chu, an Asian-American academic in New York City who travels to Singapore to attend a wedding with her Chinese boyfriend Nick, played by Henry Golding. Once there, she discovers that Nick is the heir to a super rich but very traditional family who then aren't all that welcoming to his new girlfriend. Now, this is a film that has had a lot of hype, particularly, I feel, in America, where it is like a landmark in terms of like Asian representation in cinema. Um, I've seen all kinds of pieces saying, you know, it's been, I think, since 1993's The Joy Luck Club, since there were so many speaking roles for Asian actors. That is completely incredible and terrible fact there. I had no, that's just, it just seems completely inexcusable, doesn't it? That we, and we were talking about this recently with, um, Mm. to all the boys I've loved before, where the production company that made that were the only production company that wouldn't insist on whitewashing the lead role, who's a Korean American teenager. And that is just, Mm -hmm. it's just mad. Like you can't, you can't believe it, but then, you know when you're in a privileged position to be able to disbelieve these things it's it's a lot easier I'm sure for a lot there'll be a lot of people listening who are yeah. like well duh that's what it's it, like um but yeah it's really it's, yeah it's, really it's a, I feel a similar conversation that happened um around African-American representation with films like Hidden Figures and Black Panther where slightly against the odds or against the expectations of studios they were massive box office hits um and, you know, everyone who, as you say, had been deploring this lack of representation was like, well, duh, there's loads of us. Of course we would go and see films where we mm-hmm. feel like we're being mm-hmm. represented. Um, and the same has been true for Crazy Rich Asians. You know, it's made a lot of money and been really successful. And I think there's already talk about a Crazy Rich Asians too. There are uh, there are more novels. But it's made over $200 million worldwide. Which is 
a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I, I, we have both seen it. I found it very enjoyable. Uh, you know, easy to watch, funny. Um, but I struggled with it as as like a really high quality rom com, and I think part of that will be because mm. maybe it's not for me, which is completely fine, and it doesn't have to be for me. And I, I imagine a lot of the really um, exciting parts of watching that and feeling your, and seeing yourself represented will be in some of the details, which will go yeah. over the heads of some of the white audiences. And I've, you know, read some pieces online from people where I'm like, oh yeah, cool. I would never have even noticed that that was something that doesn't, you know, that you don't normally see on screen in terms of just like quirks of dialogue and things like that. But yeah, there were, <laughs> there were parts that, um, I also really, from a kind of like wealth porn perspective, there were parts that I really, really enjoyed. There is a lot of that in it, yeah. Where like, yeah, there is a lot of that. And it's all kind of ridiculous. And, you know, knowingly so, like, you know, there's a very ridiculous uh, wedding sequence, including like a um, uh, an aisle that is bathed in sort of <laughs> almost holy water, just suddenly uh, running down the aisle. And, you know, the, the bride in a beautiful barefoot and in a gorgeous gown. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's loads of really amazing, um, stuff like that. There's just like, like with most rom-coms, like any bog standard white rom-com, there's like some mm-hmm. frustrating gender politics. There's some like kind of, uh, ridiculous reaches of plots, uh, you know, characters doing crazy mental gymnastics, um, people behaving in a completely absurd, vindictive manner, <laughs> um, stuff like that that was really strange. And I think the fundamental premise that's really important to the novel and the and the film and is a kind of premise that happens in lots of things, which is this kind of like, it's not it's not a rags to riches story. The essential premise is kind of a bit ridiculous, but it is one that is essential to many, many rom-coms and kind of also fairy stories um, where it's not quite a rags to riches tale, but Rachel, um, who's an economics professor in New York, has met um, her boyfriend, Nick, Nick Young in New York, and they live like a normal couple's life. Um, and unbeknownst to her, Nick Young is like, extremely wealthy to the point of being mm-hmm. famous yeah um and his his family mostly live in singapore where they live this quote crazy rich asian lifestyle um and so she suddenly she, the first she hears of this is when she's on the plane going to meet her, his family and they're in first class and they're being treated incredibly well and like obviously you're just like come on really hasn't told you any of this stuff Mm. about his life at all and you're just like not like she doesn't she doesn't really get particularly upset by it it's kind of like a a normal hurdle for her to overcome but it's it seems beyond bizarre to me to be like yeah I've just gone on holiday with my partner to meet his family and I've just realized I don't know anything about him at all and yeah and now he seems to be some kind of Asian Kardashian and who knows (laughs) yeah yeah, and like obviously, spoiler alert, they don't mm-hmm. split up over the course of this movie, and in fact, their relationship progresses in significant ways. And every like, when there were significant developments in their relationship, I just found myself internally screaming, "Like, girl, what are you doing? You don't <laughs> know away. this person. Everything he ever told you was a lie. Why are you like committing yourself to this man? This is like a mad thing to do." And I struggled a bit with the essential premise of kind of her realizing the importance of um self-sacrifice her and her like there's the the key kind of third act 
plot twist involves her um, kind of selflessly saying, I just want him to be happy. And if it's without me, that's fine. And and then that's that's kind of the, the thing that allows the happy ending to occur. And that kind of frustrated me. I was like, why can't they both be happy? Why does she have to self-sacrifice at all? Yeah, why does she have to? Yeah, why? I know. Um, one aspect of that that I did find interesting, though, is sort of the conflict that it sets up between her as an Asian-American and then his family who just see themselves mm. as Asian or Chinese or Singaporean. Um, you know, they are, you know, very similar people, but her family has emigrated to America and his family is not. Yeah, um, there's a line where Nick says something like, "She, well, look, I'm, aren't you so happy I'm, I met like a Chinese girl? And she's like, Chinese American. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And her mother, uh, his mother makes all these comments about like, Americans only care about their own happiness. Whereas, you know, here in Singapore, we understand that it's about building something longer lasting than that you know yeah. all of that kind of thing yeah and there are lots of um kind of like sub plot elements that i think are almost more interesting than the mm. main plot in this movie um uh, I, there's just i just struggled with the happy ending of it all and yes and there were you know i wasn't i wasn't like laughing super hard during this movie and um there is also an element to which like this makes me sound like the world's most annoying picking holes for the sake of picking holes person but like there was an element to the extent where i was like well the wealth porn is a bit gross like yeah there's a line a where someone <laughs> yeah there's a line where someone says something like you know um there's a there's a subplot um which is a relationship between an incredibly beautiful successful rich woman and her also very handsome from a different socioeconomic background uh businessman husband who's cheating on her and there's a line where she says something to him like this was never about your background or about money like my family aren't prejudiced they just happen to be rich they're like you know good people but you're a coward kind of thing mm. as though like the money the ex the extreme amount of money is like completely morally neutral and like yeah. it just depends <laughs> if you're a good person or not it doesn't matter whether you're rich or not and it's like well extortionate wealth is like not morally neutral yeah. and like how you and choose to spend your money is not morally neutral like it kind of lets all the rich characters off the hook a little bit exactly and that's compounded i feel when you you eventually find out like how they are wealthy which is basically they are landlords <laughs> yeah um, which is i mean maybe they are amazing caring wonderful landlords but like as a global profession it's not known for kind treatment of oh my god this is so interesting as well because we are going to talk about this a little bit in the next segment mm. i think um which is something that yeah i'm really interested in but yes uh, so Crazy Rich Asians, I thought, you know, I really support its success and I'm glad that I like went to the box office mm -hmm. and paid to see it and like glad that it's doing really well. But it doesn't mean that it's also like an incredible and it doesn't have to be. No, you know, there's no there shouldn't be a burden of expectation on it to be better than any other rom-com. And it's not better than the current average rom-com in the US for me. But why should it be? No, exactly. And there just needs to be more films like it. Yeah. So last week I recommended that Anna watch Shane Dawson's documentary series on his YouTube channel, which is called The Secret Life of Jeffree Star. So first question, Anna, did you know who either of these people were before I recommended this? I knew who one of these people were. I knew who Jeffree Star is. 
I have been kind of vaguely aware of Jeffrey Star for maybe the last two or three years. I'm not someone who knew about him back in the MySpace era of 2007 and mm. 8, which is when in that kind of Paris Hilton, Perez Hilton moment, that's yeah. when um, Jeffrey Star became famous as an aspiring musician. Uh, yeah, initially as a singer, really, and also just like a sort of internet personality because mm-hmm. he was like one of the biggest users on MySpace. And yeah, then he sort of became a YouTuber, really. And now he's mostly main for, known for makeup. Yeah. Like a lot of influencers and social media stars, um, he really understood the enormous amount of money that's in the beauty market. And so started, mm. I mean, he is like a professional trained makeup artist and yes. he started um, making his own cosmetics uh, and they sell incredibly well. So, yeah, I have no idea who Shane Dawson is kind of still. (laughs) I mean, I've watched this show, so I know a little bit about him. Um, You described him as kind of the Louis Theroux of uh, YouTube. And he does a lot of interviews with different YouTube stars where he sort of spends a day in the life as them and like dresses up as them and does these kind of impressions of them and stuff. Um, So that's kind of how this video series begins with... Jeffree Star giving Shane Dawson a tour of his house, which is like ridiculous and over the top and tacky and pink and um, also just huge, enormous. Everything's incredibly expensive. There's, you know, closets and closets and closets full of designer clothes and bags and shoes. Um, And for me, the beginning of these video, this video series was not good. It felt really, I hate that feeling when you're watching something, when you're where you feel like the people are really aware of the fact that they're being filmed and really playing up yeah. certain parts of their character for the camera. Um, and Jeffree Star wasn't doing this so much, actually, but Shane Dawson, I thought, really was. And like there would be moments where he'd ask salacious, provocative questions and then like do like a really incredibly shocked face as he was hearing the response in a way that I just That's found. That's kind of his style. Yeah. Um, this is, again, this is kind of why I asked whether uh, he... He, he does that to take the piss. Yeah. So like a lot of his videos before, so this whole thing where he like interviews people is relatively new before he started, but he's been on YouTube for like 10 years. Before he was doing this, he was doing, he kind of had two strands. One was parody videos, which was exactly, this is where he developed this persona, mm. where he would just mock other YouTubers in sketches mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then the other strand was like conspiracy theories yeah so he made loads of videos about you know pyramid schemes and conspiracy theories and haunted houses and stuff Mm. and he's i feel like he's kind of married the two in this new Mm. like strand of work that he's pursuing where he does he sort of does his like ridiculous shocked shane thing but also sees a wider conspiracy and everything yeah um so yeah, I think that's kind of where that comes from. I just found a lot of it a bit like almost like not mocking, but almost like propagandary where it was like, oh my God, I'm here with the shocking Jeffree Star. He just said mm. something about sucking a dick. Can you believe this people? Oh my God. And I was like, whoa, I like I don't find this very genuine. But Jeffree Star himself like remained himself the whole He's way the through. the same always. Like, this is the thing. He, he, I don't watch him a lot, but from what I've seen, he is just like that all the time. And he has the the real ability of kind of a media star, which is 
whether or not they're being natural to seem like they're being natural mm. and just themselves all the time. And even as he's kind of like flicking his hair for the camera, you just get the sense that he would be like that, whether the camera was on or off. And he's got quite a like calm voice that I, that I really like. Um, but then as the videos go on and they stop doing quite so much of like, okay, we're going to put makeup on Shane and now we're mm. going to show you my dogs and I'm going to, show you how expensive this room in my house is like when the kind of like tour and the parody and that kind of stuff dies down and there's actual genuine conversation there were things that were really really fascinating and jeffree star you know there's a lot of moments in it where jeffree star's like i've never told anyone this before which again i found a little bit self-aggrandizing and circle jerky like mm. it's great for the two of them to pretend that this is some unforeseen breaking down of walls that's never happened before um, because it's just good for both of their like promotion. Um, but there were there were moments that felt really kind of like, oh wow, they're talking about stuff in a very open way. Like there's a bit where Jeffree Star talks about um how he um would do sex work. And he was like, oh, I've never actually mm. mentioned that I would do I would have sex with famous people for money before. People just know that I would have had sex with fame a lot of famous people, but people didn't know that I was like, you know doing sex work for them as well and then there's a really interesting conversation about money and how much money jeffree star makes and yeah. he says it's in the hundreds of millions a year and you know these figures are huge and we figure out how he earns that much money and it's not actually just from makeup and a lot of it is in property development and he mm. says something really interesting like yeah we buy these properties we get um a property manager in and it just runs itself and it just makes loads and loads of money and we just like don't yeah. do anything and like that is just so depressing. That is how the rich get richer. And it's just, and then there's a line where he talks about paying his taxes and he's like, you know, I pay 20, I paid 20 million in taxes this year. Like why? What's that going towards? Like, <laughs> and, and then there's a couple of lines where he talks about money as a burden and how like actually more money, yeah. more problems is a real thing. And like, people are just going to mock him and say that he's, you know, complaining, you poor little rich boy, but like, it's genuinely true. You learn who your real friends are because everyone wants something from you. And I was just like, wow, this is like an astounding portrait of, you know, someone who in all their identity politics, you'd expect to be extremely left wing and is in lots of ways quite left wing or at least liberal. And then it's just like incredibly that kind of like American Republican capitalist, mm. like this thread of that, that was just absolutely fascinating to me. And I just, I really wanted there to be more, you know, Shane Dawson isn't there to disagree with his interview subjects. That's not really how he functions. That's not the impression I got in these. And, you know, he got loads of great stuff out of Jeffree Star. So who am I to sit here and be like, oh, I wish he'd been more confrontational. But um, yeah, they're, I kind of wanted someone to be like, you don't want to pay taxes. Why not? <laughs> why not? What? Why do you? Why? Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So um, Shane Dawson has actually just started a new series in the last couple of days about Jake Paul, mm. the brother of Logan Paul, who uh, of the like Japan suicide video controversy. Um, and actually, I think in the first episode of that one, because um, he's very like, in fact, I've watched two episodes of it. We still haven't actually met Jake Paul. Like it's a lot of preparation and like talking to other people about him first. And one of the things he says in the setup for it was like, I feel anxious about the fact that in some of my other series, I maybe haven't been mm. as like pushy and interrogative as I could have been. And I'm absolutely determined not to let that happen with Jake Paul. Mm. Cause I feel like, you know, there's, 
there's so many like bad things known about him that it would be really remiss of me if I didn't like go in hard which is why like he goes to he goes and interviews like a psychologist and stuff before he even talks to Jake Paul to try and get her to help him like what are the good questions to ask him like how should I approach Mm. this if I want to know these things what should I ask him and stuff um so yeah I think he is conscious of that but obviously in the moment decided to kind of just softly like guide him along rather than yeah one thing I find so interesting about all of this as like a meta thing is why are YouTubers interviewing other YouTubers yeah there's no media scrutiny of this world at all it's a huge part of YouTube in general is YouTubers starring in each other's videos and Mm. collaborating because if one person's got a million subscribers and another person's got a million subscribers obviously if they do a video together that's a potential extra million subscribers for each of them and there's a whole but it, it, it is so intense and there are some subsections of youtuber culture like you talk about the logan paul jake paul kind of they've got like an sort of an extended family of other youtubers and they Mm. all supposedly live in the same house and they all have these like reality tv style relationship dramas that then are later like jake paul got engaged but then it was revealed to be like a prank quote or like Mm. not real um like all this stuff is so bizarre and unregulated and so it's like this kind of like weird fantasy fiction merging like a lot of reality tv essentially but it just feels like it's happening outside of the structures of reality tv and where the audience is mostly kind of like teenagers and young people and like the rest of the world isn't really engaging or watching so like more extreme things seem to be able to happen it's all just bizarre it's all bizarre yeah so i do find it really interesting that like as far as I know Jeffree Star hasn't been on you know the New York Times haven't done like a long profile of him or anything and yet like like 100 million people have watched this Shane Dawson series or something um yeah it it does feel like a really strangely hermetically sealed little world where they all just talk to each other and this latest manifestation of it is that they want it to seem like a documentary rather than a collaboration yeah yeah exactly yeah and I, I, there were moments where I felt like, hang on, this just seems like a mutually beneficial mm. exercise oh, and not, definitely a, is. not a real documentary. But then maybe all real documentaries are also mutually beneficial exercises. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I find it endlessly fascinating, this whole mm. thing. Um, not least because I feel like I'm 30. A lot of other people my age just have no idea that it exists. Mm. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bizarre. But so thank you. It was a real educational experience for me. So uh, next week, we are going to leave YouTube for a bit. And although I will obviously be watching the Jake Paul series intently, uh, we're going to try a podcast. And this is one that I feel quite apprehensive about. It's called Dr. Death. And it's a kind of true crime medical thriller podcast, nonfiction, apparently, uh, and just a lot of people have described it to me as simultaneously the most impressive and disgusting thing they've ever listened mm. to. So I don't know how far we're going to get with it, <laughs> but we're going to give it a try. Okay, well, nervously, I'll go ahead with that for next time.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.